0: Deconstruction, a podcast from FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. Welcome to Deconstruction. I'm Associate Professor Patrick Stokes. We live in an age of new and unsettling epistemological slogans, fake news and post-truth. But just what is the post-truth condition and how do we get out of it? This week, we're talking to Deakin Philosophy's own Dr. Kathy Legg. This is Patrick Stokes and I'm chatting today with uh, Dr. Kathy Legg, senior lecturer here in the philosophy department and member of the philosophy and history of ideas group Uh, and still kind of the new kid here. This is actually your uh, your third year now, isn't it? Yes, my third year. Can you just walk us through, before we get going on uh, the topic of post-truth, can you just walk us through your career? Because you've actually had um, a really interesting career as, as far as philosophical careers go. Yours is, is quite an interesting path.
1: It's been a little bit eclectic. So um, I started out uh, being trained as an analytic philosopher at Melbourne University and then at Monash for my master's. Um, and then I headed to the ANU for my uh, PhD PhD. Um, And I became very interested in a different tradition of philosophy, which is pragmatist philosophy. And I just really liked the idea of uh, trying to make philosophy useful. And uh, always thinking of um, applications for philosophical ideas. So that, uh, I I did my PhD on Charles Peirce, who was the originator of pragmatism, um, who I still find really interesting. And then, but then I jumped sideways after my PhD because uh, we had a visitor um, at at the ANU who was talking about this thing called applied ontology, uh, which might sound like a contradiction in terms but it's not. So he was engaging with uh, the computer industry um, and which was at the point where uh, uh, knowledge management and information systems uh, were becoming sophisticated enough that they were starting to join up for the first time and talk to each other. So what they found they needed was some kind of overall conceptual scheme to translate the different forms of knowledge into so that these... Mm -hmm. Databases could talk to each other, and of course, what is a general conceptual scheme uh, about the categories of reality? That is an ontology. So I got excited by this idea, and I went off and joined a company called CyCorp, who had a long-running artificial intelligence project to build a giant ontology. So I worked there for a couple of years.
0: That's a very Terminator sort of (laughs) name. That's
1: quite. So it was CyCorp, as in C Y C as in psyche, Mm -hmm. but also as in encyclopedia. (laughs)
0: So. <laughs> cool. So this is awesome. So, so. philosophers, we, we, we tend to sort of joke among ourselves about how non-practical or non-useful we are, but that is is pretty, that's fairly important stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I wouldn't say that the company met all of its goals in terms mm-hmm. of uh, they wanted to formalise uh, common sense knowledge. So the sort of understanding that a seven-year-old has of <laughs> <laughs> the way the world is put together. Uh, but it turned out that that's a bit more difficult than I think the founders of the company thought it would be. So they thought, Just five years, uh, and they would capture all of this knowledge. And then it was, well, we need another five years, and then we need another five years. And uh, when I worked there, I think they'd been going for twenty years, and uh, (laughs) they're
0: still going. (laughs) No end in sight. So
1: you just can keep building, building, and building. But it was fascinating to be inside this ontology and to kind of crawl around in it and find out what people had, um, yeah, had put there. But it also had an inference engine, so you could ask a question and get answers and the inference engine was built all around formal logic so we learned a lot of formal logic um Working at the company in a very practical way. But I did miss um, the thing I missed about the university life was the time to do my own thinking and my own reading and writing. So we were engineers. We called ourselves ontological engineers. Uh, we had business cards with that <laughs> job title. And as all engineers do, we worked in teams and we were debugging the ontology so that it, we would get the answers that we wanted to get of the inference engine so it was nine to five uh working in teams so in the end i missed the chance to develop my own ideas so i'm glad i came back to the university
0: as a sector as a way <laughs> so in terms of the the practical applicability of philosophy i guess um we live in a time which would be i think a particularly for anyone who works in social epistemology, but epistemology more generally, it would be a very interesting time to work in those fields because mm. we we live in an era in which epistemological anxiety, I guess, is being discussed in a way that maybe it hasn't been previously with a whole post-truth Play. I mean, firstly, I mean, let's start with the diagnostic question. Is that true? Is there genuinely a problem of post-truth now? Is there a real problem there or are we actually just sort of freaking out over nothing?
1: I don't... I definitely don't think we're freaking out over nothing. So, I think that... Um there's a lot of changes going on, um, and the intersection of epistemology and technology is something that I'm still really interested in. Um, after yeah, working at Cycorp, so I've done you know various research projects looking at the internet and Wikipedia and how knowledge formation is changing. And I think applied epistemology is a, a really becoming shaping up to be a really fascinating area there is a lot of talk about post-truth and fake news and post-truth was the word of the year for the oxford dictionary in 2016 and yeah, the Oxford Dictionary defines post-truth as a situation where objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So I think we can we can all yeah recognise in at least in our first world context a rise of populism, political populism in the UK, in the US, in Australia, and I think that this is definitely having an impact on public debate, Uh, but not just um, sort of popular media, it is interacting with and challenging various traditional sources of authority, epistemic authority, and the university is having to work out how to position itself in this new context. So there's a quote um, which I think is very telling from uh, one of the politicians who um, was very key in The Brexit uh, push, where he said, uh, "The general public are sick of experts."
0: This is Michael Gove.
1: Michael Gove. Yeah, Yeah, people in this country have had enough of experts. That's the exact quote. (laughs) And can you imagine someone saying that? You know, in 1955, uh, a recognised public official. Um, it would be some kind of scandal. But, uh, but at this point, people are just like, yeah, people are really sick of experts. That's a good observation. So there's something going on, a sort of an anti-authoritarianism, um, which, yeah, which we need to think about.
0: So anti-authoritarianism is not an intrinsically bad thing necessarily. No. I mean, there, there is uh, an argument. how. Um, friend and colleague Chris Fleming at um, Western Sydney's made this argument that in a way what we've got now is just the enlightenment coming to its logical conclusion if it's all superiority, all dare to think for yourself, well fine, I'm going to yeah. think for myself and I'm not going to listen to uh, climatologists or epidemiologists or anyone else who thinks they're better than me, you know, I mean is, is there... Mm,
1: that's Yeah, so just as uh, with the Protestant Reformation, people took, uh, took to themselves the, the job of you know their own spiritual development now maybe people are doing the same thing with their own intellectual development, <laughs> and so I guess the key question is you know are these two things analogous? Um, can you be the same kind of expert with respect to climate science as you might be with respect to your own spiritual life? Uh, maybe it's a little bit more complicated in the second case, but yes, I think you're right. Uh, a philosopher called Steve Fuller, who's also writing about Post truth, he talks about um, this phenomenon as epistemic trust busting. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, you know, uh, universities, which have been very much the province of the elite classes in the West, they have taken for granted that they run the show with respect to knowledge, um, and ordinary people are now challenging that. But it's an open question where we're going to end up with, with this process.
0: So in terms of of how this plays out, uh, in terms of political discourse, so, I mean, one of the the concerns about the post-truth era is not just that um, there's expertise denial. There's been a lot of talk about expertise denial, and I've had things to say about that, and as have you. Um, But it, it also seems like there's a sense in which there are no longer any kind of agreed epistemic standards against which we can check truth claims, for instance. So if the President of the United States says something that appears to be outrageously false, It's like, how do we know it's outrageously false? You know, in times gone by, you would have said, well, the New York Times says this or um, the universities say this, but those are precisely the epistemic authorities who are now in question.
1: Yeah. So according to uh, the fact-checking website, PolitiFact, 69% of Trump's public statements fall into the categories of mostly false or false or pants on fire,
0: (laughs) But notice that. Where where does pants on fire fit into a truth table? Where's the pretty pretty bad, (laughs) pretty bad. If we sketch this out formally, (laughs) where do we?
1: Uh, But notice that. you know, in the background, there is still some kind of coherent or intelligent notion of fact-checking going on. So, so I don't think we should panic uh, about the complete disappearance of all epistemic standards. But I think we are going through a period of serious, uh, we're going through a serious shake-up. But that's not to say that it won't settle down into a new – I'm tempted to say regime (laughs) – a new – set of shared, yeah, understandings about epistemic standards, but the shake-up period is is pretty unsettling.
0: So, so walk us through, uh, as somebody who is interested in and invested in pragmatist thought, walk us through what you take an epistemic standard to be here. What are the sort of operative standards and processes that are going to sort of, yeah. what we should hope are going to somehow reassert themselves.
1: Yeah, well this is where Peirce is really interesting and really useful, as you would hope a pragmatist would be. In his early career, Peirce wrote a paper called The Fixation of Belief and so in this paper he took a really um, broad, general look at the issue of epistemology from a pra- pragmatist perspective and so what he said was that um, the real issue in epistemology is not so much knowledge because you don't necessarily know you know well well, we've already talked about how this concept is contested so knowledge is not something you can be sure about but belief is much clearer so you know what you believe and what you don't believe um Pretty much. So he took the central question of epistemology to be fixing belief. Um, so he said that doubt is a situation where you are unsettled and you don't know how to act in a given re- respect. So with pragmatism, everything comes down to action ultimately. And then belief is a settled, comfortable state where you know how to act in a given respect about some particular thing. So really, the problem of Epistemology is how do we fix belief? How do we get more stability in our belief system so that we can trust uh, uh, trust our beliefs enough to act on them? So if we take that framework, he said, if you think about it, there's only really four ways that uh, we can fix beliefs, and this uh, he he developed this taxonomy by looking at human history and also looking at, around him at the methods that people uh, use today so I'll talk I'll just briefly talk about these th- four methods so the form the first method he called the method of tenacity so this is when you just decide what you want that you want to believe some particular thing and you decide you're just going to hold on to that belief no matter what and if somebody tries to give you an argument or evidence against that belief you'll be like no nah, I don't want to listen <laughs> that's uh no nope, shut up I know what I want to believe, and I'm going to believe that. Well, that's certainly not
0: relevant to our current... uh, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Sounds sounds unedifying. But nevertheless, we all practice this method uh, in many situations. And I actually... Uh, It's arguably appropriate in certain situations, but it's not obviously not a good method to use for all of your beliefs. So it's an unstable method because you can't really live in society if you're going to be so stubborn. So then he said the next method is the method of authority. So then you look to an institution to tell you what to believe. This might be a church. It might be a political party. uh, There are other groups in society who are very happy to uh, play this role for you. And so this has the benefit that now we have a social setting where people are on the same page and they believe the same thing. They can work together. They can act together. And again, we can think of many situations where this is this method is alive and well in our society. But again, Peirce thought that this method was essentially unstable because it's arbitrary what institution you look to and what that institution says. So, you know, you might at some point notice that the christian church says one thing about a particular thing you should believe and then another church a muslim church uh says something very different so you know that raises the question well are one of these writer more correct than the other and what do we do with this arbitrariness so at this point, Peirce thought philosophy often gets going because people start to develop scepticism when they see the arbitrariness of the institutions that have, they've grown up in using the method of authority. So once philosophy starts up, uh, people start to try to think through these issues for themselves. They might separate themselves from society for a little while and just withdraw and try to work out their own set of beliefs. And this is Descartes really modeled this in his philosophical meditations, uh, modeled going through this process. So this is the third method for fixing belief, and Peirce called this the a priori method. A priori just means before evidence so you're, you're just thinking it through you know, in your own mind before any experience of the world this is great because it's the first method that's rational but it's not very good at fixing belief. It's not very good at getting that stability because every person that uh, goes and works at a philosophical system tends to come up with different ideas. It's it's not a stable um, source of belief, unfortunately, just thinking about things in your own mind. So that is why Peirce ultimately recommended a fourth method, which he called the method of science. So this method is also rational, but You practice the method with other people. So uh, Peirce famously coined a term called the community of inquiry, and that is a group of people who get together and together try to uh, work out what to believe by testing hypotheses. And so this is now a method that draws on experience and also draws on the input and the criticisms of other people. And so this is science not in the narrow sense of just physics and chemistry and biology, but it's it's science in a broader sense of any uh, group of people who get together and they decide there is a reality which is separate from what we happen to believe and we want to go and try to find out more about it not assume that we already know So those are the four methods. Mm.
0: So just to sort of riff a little bit on the idea of communities of inquiry, because obviously that's been a very influential idea in philosophy of education. Yeah. uh, And in a lot of discussions of – I brought up the idea of social epistemology, and, of course, we we talked earlier about Steve Fuller, who's been a big figure in that area. Right. Um, They've been very big on that idea, but it seems like one of the problems is where do you take a community of inquiry to begin and end – So, for instance, if we want to say, um, is human CO2 emission changing the environment or changing the climate, I'm not really going to be equipped to offer anything like a serious view on the fluid dynamics of the planet, right? (laughs) Um, So, I kind of have to rely on the people that do. Mm. So, I feel like I'm not necessarily part of that kind of community of inquiry, but then there are plenty of people who will insist, no, 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 my common sense buys me entry into that process. And I can see where all you scientist eggheads are either horribly mistaken or corrupt because I can see the simple truth using, you know, high school physics and, um, you know, just the power of my own mind. So, so I wonder how do we sort of demarcate communities of inquiry? How do we sort of – because it seems like a lot of the contemporary um, – Unease is precisely around who is and isn't properly a part of those knowledge generating mechanisms?
1: Yes, I think that's a very uh, important question and it's a very deep question. I think what uh, pragmatism would suggest about that question is that there is no way of determining that in advance and you shouldn't try. So, so you know, philosophers in the past have tried to write rules for inquiry and if you want to inquire properly, this is what you, you've got to do, X, Y and Z. And if you're not doing X, Y and Z, then you're not inquiring properly. Um, and so we could maybe, by using those rules, we could... Um, we could uh, judge whether people are in or out of this community but ultimately because uh, truth is opaque to us it's not a property that we can recognise on the surface uh, that that a That a sentence is true just by looking at it, Um, and that's a peculiar feature that the truth has, uh, the property of truth has, if it's even correct to call truth a property, Um, there's a sense in which you just have to let the inquiry uh, run and see what emerges. But I think in terms of uh, the kinds of questions which require real expertise that you were talking about, Um, If people don't have the relevant expertise, they're not going to be able to keep up in the genuine discussion. And so when um, scientists are genuinely discovering new things and making things clear that have never been made clear before, there's a kind of an excitement and there's an organic process that happens where um, uh, that process starts to develop its own momentum. And people who have nothing to offer have nothing to offer that <laughs> process so it's really it's it's about a particular form of communication in which which gathers people together based on their genuine interest in decide, in working out the answer to a particular question And those people who are genuinely excited about that will choose the people to talk to uh to learn from who really can teach them something and the other people will sort of fall by the wayside and but the ultimate but you can't predict in advance where the answers are going to come from which is why the skeptics um can often you know seem to be getting uh they can seem to uh Uh, have a right to contribute to the conversation initially but if they're not uh, genuinely interested in finding out the answer then they won't. Their, their lack of contribution will become evident over time. I don't know if that's a helpful. It is. Answer. I was just.
0: <laughs> I, I just worry that they don't always simply disappear into the background. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they they become president. Yeah, sometimes yeah, they end up, yeah. you know, actually continuing to influence or shape debates even when. A position has been kind of discredited or, you know, has mm-hmm. been shown to not be held in good faith or to not be properly grounded in whatever that we, we take the rules of the road to be. So, I mean, it so, seems like there's still...
1: Yeah, so politics can really, you know, derail uh, the true scientific process as Peirce understood it by, you know, interfering with the funding and, and in... In worse regimes than ours, by persecuting people who are coming up with answers that the powerful people don't want to know, uh, but ultimately it's it's like oil and water. So the um, politics they can they can interfere with the scientific process but they can't make something be <laughs> true that's not true in my view and we've seen attempts to do this actually so there was a a soviet biology um, under stalin where there was a particular guy i think lysenko, lysenko yep. got a huge amount of funding and he was the official biologist of the stalinist regime but ultimately those ideas died because they were not they were not uh, the ones that were um not really the way things were so you can postpone this this is something per said explicitly at one point you can postpone the emergence of the truth indefinitely but you can't stop it and it's a very long range um process across time and yeah you have to be very patient it's not going to come up you know exactly when you want it to but you know it's going to come up at some point he thought Um, If we inquire for long enough...
0: It's almost the flip side of um, what Mill said. You know, it's a quote from J.S. Mill that the uh, the only advantage that the truth really holds over falsehood is that it's it's still available for rediscovery, and so yeah. it will tend to sort of crop up. Whereas yeah. it sounds like Perse is saying, "And it will. <laughs> you just you can't suppress yeah, it." Yeah, yeah. So just to finish up, then, um, if post-truth is genuinely a thing, what does post-post-truth look like? Can we, can we imagine <laughs> what comes next?
1: Yeah. So I've I've got a uh, I've written a paper on this, and um, which is partly what. I'm drawing on Um, and so and where
0: can we we read this uh, (laughs) paper the
1: paper is in a book um, which was it's a book of essays on post-truth it's called uh, Post-Truth Fake News and Viral Modernity um, edited by Peters and Michael Peters and Sharon Ryder. Anyway, uh, my paper is called The Solution to Poor Opinions is More Opinions, <laughs> Percy and Pragmatist Tactics for the Epistemic Long Game. And so in this paper, I talk about the four methods of fixing belief that I was outlining before. But I also say that I try to analyse or diagnose our current um, post-truth uh, situation um, with respect to the four methods. And so it seems that... Our current situation—it's like a mix of the first three, uh, the first three methods. So, we've got people using the method of tenacity; they just want to believe what they believe, uh, not mentioning any names. Um, and there are, you know, or th- authoritarian types who are trying to bully people on the internet, and people—lots of people—very keen to follow those people. Uh, and then we've also got aspects of the a priori method in the sense that. People seem to be very eclectic these days and lots of crazy people on YouTube working out their (laughs) own sense of belief. But what I want to say is that all of these, uh, so these three methods, I want to call these a pre-truth method. So these are all kind of evolutionary stages in human history, if you like, which come before the method of science, as Purse described it. So it seems that we're kind of, we're doing a bit of backsliding now. So it's not really post-truth. I don't think you can be post-truth because if, from a Persean perspective, truth is what will come out in. the long run so you can't be post that that is that is truth is what you find at the end so so I think what's happening is yeah we're backsliding into a pre-truth situation and so we need to work out how to step back up again taking into account our present technological situation which I think is what's uh, creating a lot of the chaos and the confusion but we'll get there I reckon I'm optimistic.
0: I was going to say that's one of the more optimistic things I've, I've heard said about this topic. So that's, uh, yeah. that, that's, that's an unusually up yeah. note to end a philosophy conversation on.
1: <laughs> if you want to be optimistic, take the long view. That's my – that's, yeah. That's how I see it. And, and again, very influenced by Peirce. I mean, look at the ancient world, you know. If you think we're bad, <laughs> look, <laughs> look at Caligula, you know, look at Nero, uh, look at, you it's, know. That's setting
0: the bar at, reasonably low. but at, yeah.
1: um, <laughs> Uh, how independent thinkers were treated, um, you know, in the in the um, city states of Italy, in you know, in the medieval period, with the, Bo- the Borgias and you know, look at look at Stalin, look at Hitler. These these phenomena are not new, but uh, we need to keep working out new ways to counter the different twists that come up as our society changes.
0: Cathy Leg, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Instruction is produced by FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. For more information, visit blogs.deakin.edu.au slash philosophy.